Hi everyone, it's Raylan. Welcome to the first interview, the first official episode of Honolulu Millennial. It only felt right to have my first interview with Gabriel Lennon, founder, owner of Five Shield Forge out in Wailua on the north shore of Oahu, a very good friend of mine who I felt is a prime example of who we'll talk to here on the podcast. We didn't get around to talking about this, but how we know each other is through the London Study Abroad program at the University of Hawaii back in 2014. The first time I met him was at our first group orientation to talk about, you know, our finances, the rules, suggestions, and culture shock that we might experience when we get to London. Our group was this unique mix of individuals kind of representing the different ethnicities that you'll see here in Hawaii. There's Japanese, Filipino, white, Hawaiian, all of us were local. Except for two. Linnea and Erica weren't there. Yeah. Little did I know at the time how close we would be after the program ended and today. So during the orientation, the person who really stood out to me the most was Gabe. Gabe and his shoes. His heavy-duty black boots with chains that reminded me of that Tekken character, Paul. You know the one I'm talking about in his biking outfit? Yeah. Gabe's also this tall, big guy, much bigger than, you know, the desk in a college ca- classroom. That's Gabe. But you know how the big guys are always the kind and warm-hearted? That's also Gabe. In this episode, we'll talk about Five Shield Forge and Gabe's passion for this hobby he's had since the study abroad program and how he's managed to turn it into a business. So welcome to the first episode of Honolulu Millennial with Gabriel Lennon. Enjoy. What are you drinking besides the uh, apple juice? Ap- apple juice. No, this is uh, Support Local, Honolulu Beer Works. Oh, yes. It's one Fantastic. Of my yes. Yeah, Do like you my... always just have like beer in the fridge? Wait, no, where do you no, get your all. beer? I, so, all right. So there, there is, there is usually some beer in the fridge <laughs> most days. Because I'm pretty yeah, sure there's always beer, beer in your fridge there, whenever we have dinner. The there's always beer in the fridge. Um, I get my beer from Tamora's or from the food line up the hill, but oh, I, yeah, yeah. I like to drink uh, things that taste good. You know, I, I like to drink for the <laughs> don't flavors. We all? <laughs> or, right, well, don't we all? But, um, you know, I prefer heavier beers or darker beers, Belgian right. ales, stouts, the cream ale, this guy again. Yeah. Um, or craft beers from local breweries. It's, you know, I, I understand how hard it is to start a business. So I try to support where I can. Right. The smaller breweries, you know, and, and especially our local guys, but yeah. you know, West Coast, and we get a lot of great imports here. So usually tomorrow's, and if I'm just out picking something up and the fridge happens to be empty, I'll get something at Foodland or Safeway, you know. Yes. Yeah. Foodland Farms has a surprisingly very extensive selection of beer, Oh, excellent. especially craft beer. And they also have local stuff too. I think I recently saw, um, I went to Foodland Farms and they have um, Paradise Ciders. Ooh. Yeah, they have Paradise Ciders there, and then is that the one from the Big Island. No, they're they they're definitely here in, in oh, okay. Honolulu, but they okay. yeah they have a small 
gosh, I guess the word is going to be wrong, but they have their own tasting room. I yep. think that's, yep, they have their own tasting room somewhere in Kalihi. It's like in one of those like streets in like the industrial places over there. And there's like maybe four parking stalls in front. And then, sure. yeah, crawlers, growlers. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. They're fantastic. I'll have to check that out. Okay. Cool. Yes. Man. Another good local spot. Very cool. I, I do not get to town often. I mean, heck, the Beer Lab opened up right here in YPO, and I, oh I don't get there yes. very often either. I, I really got to do better. I really so gotta. funny. Last year on Halloween, I was actually at Beer Lab, and I was mm-hmm. thinking like, shit, maybe I should just like go get some like some crawlers and mm-hmm. then just drink out of them. Yeah, I love Beer Lab. I think if, if anything, Beer Lab is probably like my favorite. Mm-hmm. They're definitely doing it differently. Like, I think as far as Hawaii goes, we're, we're getting more and more breweries every couple of years, it feels yeah. like, but uh, I think oh that gosh, as far yeah. as Hawaii goes, Beer Lab is like, that's our beer geek you know, yes. brew pub out here in yes. the islands. We've got a lot of fantastic local breweries, but as far as like the true beer geeks doing sours and right. really experimenting with flavors, I think, I think Beer Lab are the guys. Yeah, and they never have the same... They never have yeah. the same thing all the time. Which is a little frustrating. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Favorite. It's not on the menu. Yes. I had this one beer. I got it actually when I was at um, Square Barrels. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah. It's an IPA. I'll get it from, from Beer Lab. And I was like, I had it. I think it was called the Maratabi mm. IPA. It's kind of like it's, it's like a flower or something. But it was mm. so good. So fucking good. Oh, man. Milk stouts are fantastic. Yes. It's, it's that heavier note. There's something about it. I think um, probably because I was really exposed and introduced to beers while I was traveling and I, I happened to be in Europe. And so I feel like the Belgian ales, the very traditional German brewing standards like that really influences my taste today. And and so that's uh, that definitely plays a role in what I choose to drink. But I think milk stouts are just fabulous. Yeah, you know, the yeah, flavors, so the textures you can pack into those heavier beers, it's really impressive. So fucking good. I think one thing if I could do over from studying abroad is drinking a lot more beer. <laughs> yeah, drinking a lot more beer instead of spending my money on fucking sparkling bottled shit, you know? <laughs> I'd probably drink more beer. You made the you made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. <laughs> <laughs> which is all that any of us can do. Oh my gosh. And I think but when we were there, I was also like, I fucking hated Guinness. Mm-hmm. I think it was just because I had it in the can and it wasn't just, it was not the best, you know, in the can. Sure. But then I like had a proper, I guess, pour of it when I went to New York and I was like, this is so fucking delicious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what it's the fuck who the fuck was animal. i like okay, yes in the netherlands you know guinness in europe or the east coast i think they distribute fresh to the east coast is is different it's just different but that's the same as uh farm to table you know grass-fed yeah. beef or things of that nature or yeah. handcrafted knives it's just different when you know where the thing came from how it came to be there's just it, and it, it may be all in our heads you know but it's uh there's something definitely different about it right right Okay, so how's it? How's that going? How's how's Five Shield Forge going? It's, have you? It's, it's, do you sell a lot of knives? Have you sold a lot? So I have a, I have the best problem to have as an artisan or craftsman is that I sell pretty much everything that I make. And That's fantastic. It's great. It's great, but I don't have a lot of stock on the website. So people right. will go to the website and say, "Well, are you still working? Like, what what is this?" Because they got there on a Tuesday. 
and everybody bought everything from the week before, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So wow. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, great problem to have, but also I'm a, I'm an individual craftsman, so I don't make a hundred knives at a time. Right. You know, I make four or five, like six, I think the largest set that I've done so far is 10 knives at once. Well, and you know, if one person buys two knives, like you, you can see how quickly these, these numbers shrink. Yeah. So it's, it's a little tough, but yeah, great problem. There. How do you set, how do you send them? Like, do you, wait, your mom's also, she, she works. Yeah. Oh yeah. So my, my mother does work for the post office. She's yes. a mail carrier. But uh, so I, I learned how to pack a box at a very early age. <laughs> but um, that was, and continues to be a dilemma actually. Like I feel like as a consumer, when I receive a priority mailbox, I feel like that's uh, like someone put a little extra time and care into this and it arrived quicker, right? Priority right. Mail three to five business days. So when I see that box, it's like, oh, this is great. It was handled mm-hmm. better by the post office. It was handled better by the person who packed it and sent it. And it got here as quickly as it could. And so there's that sort of psychological element. So I try to use priority mailboxes for most of my blades. And sometimes the box is just way too big for a knife or something like that. So packing can be a little interesting trying to be a little eco-friendly. I use newspaper where I can. Um, But also I work with carbon steel, not stainless steel. So Mm -hmm. that will rust like if fingerprints get on it or if moisture gets to it. So not so eco-friendly. My knives are always wrapped in plastic. They're coated in in a mineral oil, which doesn't really harm anything. Mineral oil is very, very harmless. Um, So it's wrapped up in plastic to sort of seal it. And then I pack the box with newspaper and it's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. I'm, I'm still struggling with that. Do I just get a box that perfectly fits the knife? Do I use the priority mailbox? Yeah. I don't know. Question to ask myself every time I mail one out. I have a I have a question for you. What inspired you to start Honolulu Millennial? Um. Okay. So the reason why I started Honolulu Millennial was I've been wanting to do this for a very long time. I've been wanting to do it like two years now. And the reason why I wanted to do it was because I love to listen to podcasts. I think I'm definitely an audio learner, mm-hmm. but I also love to talk to people. I think in the jobs that I've had, a lot of it was face-to-face interacting with people, mm-hmm. trying to get somebody to do something. I used to work at a lot of marketing booths, sure. um, making friends with everyone. And one thing I really loved was that one-on-one conversation with them and just mm-hmm. learning about what they do and how they like... So these marketing booths were, were all free out. So it's like, so what do you do when you're not yelping, you know? And a lot of them, they're like teachers or they like, they're part of like a running club or one of them's like totally into beer. And so all the people that I came across, they, they were interesting to me. And I feel like a lot of them weren't, you know, a lot of people didn't know about them either. And I feel like I wanted to share their stories. And so the, Honolulu or millennial aspect of it is um, also because a lot of us within the millennial generation are doing, we're doing a lot of things. Although we're part of that generation that pays way too much for secondary education and we're like in a fuck ton of debt and we have absolutely no context or depth when it comes to like getting jobs. And we're kind of like seen as like the group that usually isn't like, I guess, right for the job or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of us who are very aspirational. A lot of us have started a lot of things, have been a part of a lot of different organizations have done a lot of things to impact the community. And I feel like those people stories should be shared. Like they, they matter. I think, I think yeah. you're right. And I, 
I don't know that we're like sort of a, a lost generation. I think that there are just a lot of millennials. There's a lot of us. Yes. And we're all in this, we're, I mean, it's a generation. So we're all in this age range where we're realizing what adulting really is. Like mm-hmm. we, we recognize now uh, what pieces of what we were told were just fantasy and which pieces we had made up for ourselves. And I think that we're also seeing through a lot of a, a lot of how things are put to people, a lot of how things are put out to audiences. So, I mean, like take marketing, uh, especially digital marketing, because yeah. there's just so much content. People are devouring content at light speed, literally, you know, with, with the cell phone at light yeah. speed. And, uh, and, and I think that just millennials as a generation are at that point where we're looking back now and, and we're, we're starting to get it a lot more as far as what works, what doesn't work, why things are the way they mm-hmm. are. And, um, you know, some things need to change. Some things don't. And I think that each person's story, each person's journey is important and should be shared. Absolutely. Because that's communication is how you get things done. Communication yes. is how we change the world, you know, and communication is also how you sell a knife and sell a product and convince someone that it's better than that $20 Walmart knife. You know, you should buy from an artisan, like you should buy grass fed, responsibly raised beef. It's just a better thing. It's a better choice to make, you know, some people can't afford it. Some people can't afford to make a better decision. Mm -hmm. Totally get it. That's just where you are in the world. But you know, that's pretty inspirational. Like a a podcast can be powerful. I think you're, you're on the right track. This is the road. Yes. Thank you. Let's start with how you got into forging. I think, um, it, so when I, when I first checked it out, I was studying abroad, I was in England and someone kind of threw it at me. It was like, Hey, you, you seem like you're kind of into that stuff, you know, into games or, um, you know, swords, medieval things, you know, cause I was really, I wanted to go see castles. I wanted to go to museums and oh I was gosh, really yes. gobbling that up. And the UK is a fantastic place to, to do that. And so it was kind of thrown at me. I went and checked it out, took a seven day class and forged a bar of steel into a sword with the help of a teacher. And, um, you know, that's, that's an experiential element and that stays in its bubble right you took a class cool but i chose to pursue it when i got back home to hawaii and um it just it just stuck it was just one of the things that stuck and when you are working with hot steel Mm -hmm. um you, you can you can really get inside your head and it's just you and the thing that you're working on and everything that you do matters and I think there's an element because so I'm in marketing. I have a marketing background yes. uh, and a, a few other elements from, from school. But um, marketing is where kind of where I spent my time in, in the professional world. And not everything that you do matters. Like uh, whether it's a, a, a useless email or a campaign that flops or maybe an event that's a dud. I mean, they happen. Like no matter how good you are, they happen. You know, there's going to be an off day or an, an off thing. And so not everything that you do matters, but when you mm-hmm. are working with hot steel, every time you hit it with the hammer, you are changing how that blade is going to come out. Um, when you're running it across a belt sander, you know, and you're grinding down that steel to get it to its final shape, the angle, the, the mm-hmm. pressure at which you ter- twist or turn the steel, like that, all that matters. Every little thing matters. And so I think that uh, that's something that pulls me to it is, is the challenge. So that's what made it stick for me and why I keep doing it because it's, it's tough, but I, I keep doing it because of the challenge. It's very you against you. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned like the whole marketing, like sending an email is mm -hmm. like, doesn't really matter. And I totally, I, I get that. Cause I feel like every single day, just, I feel like I'm sending emails and it's like, like, what am I doing? You know? Like so, what sometimes am I... you wonder if people are actually reading them, right? Like, yes. You actually sometimes get to the people, of my... <laughs> like, do you even read my whole email? Like <laughs> not all my answers, my, all, not all my questions are answered, but it's, it's, I think about it now. And like the most rewarding thing is that is getting that end product, getting mm -hmm. that end product that, and like mm -hmm. knowing all of the things that you've done beforehand to get to that point is like, that's what's worth it. And I think mm -hmm. for me in public relations, I think that's also why, like, I love to get to know people. I love to share stories is most of it is, is communicating to the public about what these things are and like sure. being able to, to, to share with all of these people that this kind of service or this, this type of product is, is here for you. And like, sure. it's also bridging the gap between people. It is, it is. And I think that's, that's kind of the heart of communications and PR mm -hmm. in a professional sense, right? In the professional world is getting a story across telling that story. And that's, that's really what a lot of businesses are basing their sales on now is how can we share our story or the story of this product or of this concept with the consumer? Yeah. And so that's, I think, I think you found your niche and at, at the heart of what you're doing is what you really love, which is like you just said, bridging that gap between people and uh, building those relationships and creating that overarching story of, of who we are on this world. Right. Yes. So it's, it's in there somewhere. You got to dig for it, but it's in there for sure. <laughs> I think so what's, that, what's the uh, process like? <laughs> sure. Sure. It, it's pretty simple. And I think that's another thing that kind of draws people to it because it's, it's an ancient craft. We have to remember that people were doing this when they really didn't have much. Right. Yeah. And it goes back hundreds, thousands of years. So the very, very basic elements are you heat up the steel, you shape it into what you want using a hammer or other means. And then you treat this steel, which is what people recognize as the quench, right? Shoving it into a liquid oil, water, what have you. Right. And there's your blade, you know, do a little polishing work or finishing work and the blade is done. So it's that heating, that shaping, and then heat treating, and then you finish the blade. And that's, that's really the, the boiled down version of the process. There are a lot of different things that go into it. Like, are you creating a sword? Are you creating a, a belt knife or a mm -hmm. kitchen knife or a kitchen cutlery? There are a lot of different, an axe head, a spear, an arrowhead, so many different blade shapes or metal tools, um, artistic blacksmithing. Are you creating mm -hmm. candle holders, door hinges, uh, things of that nature? And so each one of those, there's a lot of different details within that step-by-step -step process. But for, for anything that comes out of a smithy, uh, a blacksmith shop, almost anything, you have that, that simple step of heat it up, shape it, heat treat it, finish it. Cut is... Does glass work the same way? Glass work is close. Um, so it's it's very similar in that you're working out of a furnace or a forge. Right. And right. Not, I haven't done this. So this is just what I, I picked up and I, I think I'm right. But uh, <laughs> generally you start with beads or crystals or sand or, or elements of glass and you uh, melt that down. Right. And then you have glass blowers who shape it by putting right. air into that, that bubble and creating a bubble or a vessel with, by filling it with air. And then that cools and you knock it off the end of that blowpipe or the end of your shaping implement. And you then have to kiln it. So you're, you're yeah. heat treating that glass, that object at the end of the process, much like a blade. So there are definitely similar elements because you're having to work with heat and you're heating up an element to its malleable state to shape it to what you mm -hmm. want. And then you do have to heat treat it or, or put it into a kiln at the end. So glass work, ceramics, steel and, and metals, uh, silver, pewter, jewelry, the, a lot of them share similar elements for sure. 
So how do you know all of like, how have you gotten all of your information within that seven day period of when you did that, that, oh, man. that class? Uh, <laughs> uh, That's a really good question. The <laughs> class, it was very, very condensed and focused. Uh, he, you know, uh, Owen Bush, Bushfire Blade Works in uh, the UK mm-hmm. was uh, very, you know, did a very good job of building the curriculum. He had all the tools in place, had all the equipment and materials in place. And then, you know, he answered every question that we had at that time. I believe mm-hmm. he'd been in the field for some 25 or 20 years at that point. So he had, he had a real good handle on it. Um, and so everything pertaining to creating that sword and every other question that, you know, our, our minds could dream up, there were seven students, he was able to answer. So I came away with that information, but it was mm-hmm. all very, very wrapped around that, that core of beginning blacksmith and making a sword. You know, there are only so many questions you can pull from that umbrella. Everything else I picked up from books. There are some fantastic, fantastic books from the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, when wow. the internet wasn't quite as big as it is now. And guys were sort of digging through history books and experimenting yep. and rediscovering ways to do things with traditional you know, craftsmanship. So there are some fabulous books there. And of course, in the last 10 to 15 years, you know, our mm-hmm. knowledge has just sprinted forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the ability to share, again, coming back to the communication, the ability to share knowledge has been huge. So I've done a lot of research on my own, apart from the books, you know, on, on the interwebs, YouTube. Um, YouTube, a lot of people are on <laughs> YouTube. There are a lot of makers. There's a huge maker community on Instagram, Pinterest, all the social media platforms. You know, it's a, a lot of them are advertising themselves as find your group, find your community now. And, and people definitely are that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's talking to mentors, talking to people and then doing your due diligence, doing your homework. So, okay, two things. So was your class anything like the show, is it Forging and Fire? Forged and Fire, yeah. Forged, so was it, it anything it was like not, that? <laughs> okay. it, I mean, the process is the same. The process okay. is the same. They, they, you know, with Forged and Fire, they're given certain parameters, right? Because it's a competition. Right, right. Um, and so we, we didn't have parameters that we had to meet, uh-huh. but we had guidelines that we had to stay within because right, right. We, and as a teacher, Owen was only able to work with so many mm-hmm. variants, right? Mm-hmm. Which is totally understandable. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like an art project in a class. Like you have to choose what project you're going to do, but we can't be out here. You can't go for the moon, you know, and you can't you like build a spaceship and you can't be all the way down here. You can't just do a baking soda volcano, you know, so you have, you have your guidelines. So. Have you ever uh, thought about, about joining the show? <laughs> I thought about it. I have thought about it. They do some incredible things on that show. Um, but my, my skill set just isn't quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite what I want to do right now. So because yes. it's there are people who go on the show after six months of being a bladesmith because they watched that show. And right. I think they're up to eight or nine seasons now. Uh-huh. So there are people who have, who have grown up with the show or who have become blacksmiths because of that because, show. Right. And so you can learn the things you need to to mm-hmm. compete in a few months if you have the time to focus on it. And that's just not where I want to take my craft right now. So not, uh, it's on my radar, but not, not tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Okay. Going back to when you mentioned community. So is there like a very big blacksmith community here in Hawaii? Here in Hawaii? That's a, that's a great question. It's, it's not big, but there is a blacksmith community here in Hawaii. And um, it's, it's not super cohesive, but anytime that I've reached out to a blacksmith or a bladesmith or knife mm-hmm. maker with any questions, uh, everyone, it's, it's Hawaii. You know, so right. everyone has been very kind, very patient, very open. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I haven't been able to seek like actual mentorship or a teacher here in the islands, but 
anytime I've had a, a question, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't move forward until I, I figure this out. Um, I've, it's very, very communicative group of people here in the islands. There's probably probably two or three bladesmiths on each island or blacksmiths on each island. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's it's a handful. And there's definitely a decent number of makers who do stock removal, which is taking a piece of bar stock or a piece of steel from a mill that is in the shape of a bar, and they grind it away on a using a belt sander or other implement, mm -hmm. and they grind the shape that they want. So that's referred to as stock removal. And there's definitely a few people who do that out on the North Shore where my forges. There's a gentleman, Tom Mayo, who's pretty pretty well known he's been in the field for decades uh, but he does stock removal knives and they're just they're fantastic blades fantastic he's the man that helped your mom sharpen a pairing yeah knife. yeah that's right so uh, i remember one time you asked me about like can you repair a knife or fix a knife and yeah you totally can and so uh my, my mother had a pairing knife and she mm -hmm. snapped the tip off of that blade and something like that you know the pairing knife is already a small blade and you want it to continue to be a small utilitarian blade so with the tip missing, the blade was about half an inch shorter, but Tom was able to just regrind the edge on that. And so it stayed as a usable blade, a functional blade. But if take a, a tree trimmer or a landscaper who has a machete or a larger knife, if that blade snaps in half, you could absolutely regrind the edge on that, but it wouldn't be the blade that it was and able to perform the job that it did. So you can definitely repair and refurbish blades, but you know sometimes the purpose will change what it was built for. Um, that's a, that's another aspect of bladesmithing is that when you go to make a knife, function drives form. You know, what do you want that blade to be able to do? Mm -hmm. The function of that blade is going to drive what it looks like. A skinning knife looks different from a chef knife, looks different from a box cutter, looks mm -hmm. different from a, you know, pick your, in, insert your title there. So function drives form. Usually. Earlier you mentioned Tom. So I thought about um, who also lived in your flat. Oh, sure. So studying abroad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My flat rep was Tom, the that... head of our floor in the dorms. Yes. So to me is how, you know, to me from that seven day class. Yeah. So, so jumping from Tom to to me. Yeah. No, you're fine. You're fine. To me was a guy that I met during that class. So he was one of the other students. There were seven of us in the class. Nice man. I remember when he came down and he made those scones. Mm-hmm. He made those scones and the the lemon curd. The man can cook and bake. Good so, gracious. Yeah. I think about that lemon curd all the time. And then your mom <laughs> was super sweet enough to like put them in a small container for me. Awful <laughs> lady for sure. Oh my goodness, man. That was yeah. so good. Jimmy, he's a great guy. I, I chat with him pretty often. Nice. How about Tom? How's Tom doing? Do you talk to him often? Yeah. You guys Jumping were like best buds. Yeah, we went from Tom to Toomey to Tom. Yeah, I do, I do chat with Tom, uh, not super often, um, but yeah, I reached out to him. We were actually speaking like a couple weeks back. He's doing well. He's actually oh, in nice. Australia right now. Good for him. Shoot. Yeah. Has he been in Australia this whole, the whole pandemic or like what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, uh, I think he was going to be there a year, like in a couple more months. So he's been there almost a year now, I think. Onto the topic of pandemic, how are you doing? How is the forge doing during the pandemic and well turning I that into a full-time thing back to the professional side i was furloughed in april at, at the end of april when mm -hmm. the pandemic was really kicking off for hawaii for our state where, where did so, you get furloughed from i was furloughed from kamakana Ali'i. i was working in the marketing department there for the shopping center uh, and that's the newer shopping center out in kapolei uh -huh. on the eva plains there and um that furlough gave me the time to pursue the forge in a way that i just hadn't been able to working 40 plus hours a week yeah and so 
being able to dive into it really showed me that I didn't necessarily had what it took or know what it mm-hmm. would take to run a business or turn a hobby into a business. Yeah. So that was, it was really tough at first. And so I, I still wouldn't call it an operating business, but <laughs> I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> what do you call the beginning stage of this? I mean, it was, it was definitely a hobby that I'm, I am still trying to make right. into a business. It's, it's definitely a hobby, a, a pursuit of passion, which is really what a hobby mm-hmm. is, right? Is a, a pursuit of passion. And so it's, it's stepping over that line. There's a chalk line or a line in yeah. the sand where you, you turn it into a business. And that's where people go from being in their garages with a really good idea or something cool that they've worked on mm-hmm. to being a multinational corporation. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, when you cross that line, so, um, you know, when did, when did Clark Little stop taking photos for fun and open up galleries across the state of Hawaii, you know, and sell prints internationally? Like it's, you have to cross a line and turn it from just being something you do for fun to something you mm-hmm. eat, sleep and breathe and, and make it successful, not because mm-hmm. you were chasing those dollars, but because you fed your passion and you pursued your dreams. And, you know, along the way, you found people who wanted to support that whether it's because they love you or love Mm -hmm. your artwork or Mm -hmm. love your product or the story behind it, you know, and that's where you get into the marketing communications, building those bridges between people Mm -hmm. is, uh, is, you know, sort of tying that all together. So do you see yourself going back to any type of marketing job with this, or you're going full force with the forge? I I could definitely go back to an office job, (laughs) but there, there just aren't a lot of them right now, as as you can imagine, as Mm -hmm. we're on, hopefully we're on the shoulder of this pandemic here but uh for for now i'm going uh full force into the forge say that five times fast but it's and and really that's kind of what's spurring me on is uh do i want to go back to an office job or do i really Mm -hmm. want to chase a forge and i really want to give this forge a chance and so i'm really trying to put everything i've got into it um time money patience uh my fiance's patience oh my gosh everybody (laughs) And so, you know, I've got a lot of people rooting for me, which is, yes. but yes. at the end of the day, it's, it's down to you. And I think it's that way with any entrepreneur. It's, it's not mm-hmm. just because I'm a craftsman or an artist. It's, it's with any entrepreneurs, it's down to you. Are you going to make it happen or not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I do have to say though, of all the, for, for as long as I've known you, you've had a lot of ideas, like a lot of things. And especially with Talia, I'll actually have Talia on the podcast later yes so you with talia and all the ideas you guys kind of just like go hand in hand when it comes to these things Mm -hmm. because she's like the dreamer and then you're like the finding all the parts to like put it together i remember that one time when we were all in um down in wailua and you were she wanted to like live in a crate or something and then i don't know if it was like you or she found somebody and like right. called them and said like how much it was. And it was like $500. Yeah, the shipping containers. Yeah, <laughs> the those sh- 20 foot and 40 yes. foot the shipping containers. Yeah. 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 It's, so- it's, there's somebody out there who can make your dream happen or help you make your dream happen. Yeah. And you know, sometimes it's down to building a relationship or sometimes it's down to having the money, which mm-hmm. a lot of us don't have. And I don't think that's just a millennial problem. <laughs> a lot of us don't have money to pursue things. Yeah. So but, we're uh, all working on the relationship yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah. 
knowing, you know, knowing that the pieces are out there, like shipping container homes. If you go on YouTube or Google, people are doing this. So there yes. must be someone who knows what's going on. So yeah, she, she also did. wanted to make a house out of a school bus. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We have to have Tolly on. Bus homes are a thing too, man. <laughs> Uh, the, the tiny home movement is a real mm-hmm. thing for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, I fully support you oh, thank and you. I am looking forward to getting my custom kitchen knife or cleaver awesome. or whatever. But the awesome. only thing I ask is like something yellow, maybe like with the handle or something. Let me know. Totally. Totally. Yes. We, we can do that. We can okay. do that. So I do have a couple of questions that we're just going to like run through. Okay. So, sure. Okay. One question is, what has been the most difficult part of the process of your process in forging? Uh, the process of forging. So for, for me in turning this hobby into a business, I think the most difficult part is recognizing that I can't just buy things like, oh, that's really cool. People use this to make mm-hmm. this thing. That's from the hobby aspect, right? Where I kind of want to taste test everything. Uh, I have to be very careful about what money I spend. And as mm-hmm. far as the forging itself, the most difficult process the most nerve wracking process is the heat treating because you're altering the molecular layout of that steel and how those different pieces that make up that that steel blade that you see on a molecular level, you're mm-hmm. altering how those all fit together when you heat treat a blade. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things can go wrong during that time. You can put 14 hours, 30 hours into a blade up to that point and ruin it all, or mm-hmm. it can all go perfectly. So those are the two difficult pieces there. So I assume forging is kind of like one of those things where it's like, you should start off with more than enough. That way you can just like start to just chip away or grind away. That's one way to do it. But uh, if you watch a few episodes of that Forged and Fire show on History (laughs) Channel, you'll see that starting off with excess material sometimes hangs you out to dry because when you put that steel into the fire, it takes more time to heat up because you're heating up more mass, right? And when you take it out to hit it, if you don't have a power hammer or a mechanical assist Mm -hmm. and you're just swinging a hammer with your arm and your shoulder, you're moving all of that mass Mm -hmm. again. So there are diminishing returns on, uh, you can set yourself up for failure by trying to set yourself up for success. It's a real (laughs) catch 22, but it's definitely there. I've, I have caught a few episodes Forged and Fire because I absolutely love the show Vikings on the History oh, sure. Channel. And it's usually right before that episode airs, which comes back in November, which I'm super stoked for. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I haven't actually watched Vikings yet, but I know oh it had gosh. a huge following in like Game of Thrones and a few yeah. other shows. There's been a huge yeah. following. It's definitely, uh, actually, I think they're a bit the same, but yeah. Vikings is... I'm not, I don't know. I love it. But I think if you love Game of Thrones, you will also love it. Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen Game yes. of Thrones either. Secret. Wait, stop it. You you read the books I though. I got to do better. I have to do better. <laughs> I, I, I think it's season six, episode three. Just end there. Just don't, <laughs> don't watch past that. <laughs> Go no further. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. Oh, uh, next question. So as a millennial, has there been any barriers for you mentally, physically to be able to start forging? Or was it always just like, this is what I have to do. This is what I need to get done. I think I, I've been very, very fortunate. And I had a very supportive family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know not everyone has that situation. Um, so for me, any barrier to entry is mental. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, monetary as well. Like yeah. we're, oh, we're not course. super well off or anything like that. In there. So, but, <laughs> I'm, <right>. there. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> I'm there. Uh, 
uh, starving artist. They, they didn't just make that phrase up. It's very real. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely mental. Like the only reason that Five Shield Forge won't become a thing is because of a mental barrier on my part. Right. Like I have all the tools I need. And that I think that may be a little bit unique to the blacksmith because it I, I need someplace hot to heat up the steel. I need it, something hard to hit it against, like an anvil. And I need to be able to dunk it in a bucket. Like it, it, very, very few tools needed to come out with a successful blade. So uh, it's, it's all mental. Can I put in the time? Can you commit to being better than you were yesterday and doing more, working faster, working harder and in order to excel? Because it's, I, I have no mechanical assist. I hammer out each one of those blades and it can really be a mind game some days. So, uh, and, you know, physically, I was very fortunate. Not a lot of that equipment was here mm -hmm. on island because, you know, it's not uh, the Midwest or something or the North. You know, we don't have mines. I didn't have, we don't have anvils and railroad tracks in, in great abundance. You know, we had a few for the plantation. All of those were very condensed and very isolated areas. And most of that equipment has long since been passed on to antiques or it's, you know, been repurposed already. So when I came to the craft, I was very, very lucky. I found most of my gear on Craigslist right. uh, of all places. So resourceful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very resourceful. So in the used market, I was able to find a decent anvil forge and, and, you know, go from there. So yeah. Any, any barrier to success, mental, all mental for sure. Definitely. I, I get that. Like I mentioned earlier, this shit took me two years to start. <laughs> but, <laughs> you started, but you're starting. That's the yes. important part. Yes, so many of us <laughs> are, are dreamers and we don't start. I'm definitely a dreamer yeah. and starting is the hardest part. And uh, mm -hmm. I, going back to it, you know, for something like the forge, going back to it every day is, is very tough sometimes, mm -hmm. but starting, starting is probably the hardest part for a lot of people. Again, not just millennials, probably yes. most people just mm -hmm. start, just yes. get out there and try Yes. Okay. My last question. Mm -hmm. um, what are your goals for Five Shield Forge? That's a really good question. That's a really <laughs> good question. And being goal oriented is a fantastic way to find success. Uh, my, my first and foremost goal would be to create a signature blade. I, I really want to have something that uh, when yes. people see it, they think of my shop or they think of me. Right. And when people think of my shop mm -hmm. or think of me, they think of that blade like, oh, he does. He's the guy yes. who makes that knife, yes. you know, or, or those types of knives. I don't and, know if it's the marketing in me or the public relations in me, <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's that small stat that you have on every single of your blades. That's like sure. that small little detail, too, is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the maker's mark. Yeah, the touch mm -hmm. mark um, that uh, took a while to get to that. But that, you know, that little thing, that's like a calling card, right? When yeah. people see that, that's the brand. I want them mm -hmm. to think of think of me or think of my forge when they see that volcano in a circle, right? It's a volcano, everybody. A lot of people ask. Uh, some <laughs> some people, you know, like you yourself, but it's some people do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but some people do ask. Uh, so that I think that's probably my first number one goal is to have a signature blade. And the second goal would have to be to teach and share and, and communicate. There are mm -hmm. a lot of things that you can learn about yourself and just that you can apply to your life from making blades or working with steel in general, um, blacksmithing in general. So many fantastic lessons to apply to daily life and to a professional career, to everything. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for this opportunity. It's uh, oh, it was great to sort of dig into that a little bit. Yes. Um, you know, people don't always ask thoughtful questions like that. So I'm glad I got had a chance oh, to come thank on. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Gabe, where can they find you? Where if they want to buy knives, where can they find you? 
Sure. You can check out my website. So that's www.fiveshieldforge.com. All spelled out, F-I-V-E, shieldforge.com. I also have uh, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, at Five Shield Forge. Uh, the YouTube videos, I'm working on revamping that and, and actually having a real channel. So stay tuned. But there's a few <laughs> videos there that you can check out. And Instagram is probably where I spend most of my time. Yes. So you can DM me there. You can comment on my posts. I, I read the comments. Uh, so I, I try to get back to everybody who has a question or wants to talk to me about something. So and the content also- coming out of the Instagram is fantastic, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and you can also just send me an email directly. That's info, I-N-F-O, info at fiveshieldforge.com. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Gabe. Of course. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode. You heard Gabe. If you have a chance to, please check out fiveshieldforge.com. A lot of great things coming out. And if you liked this episode, please let me know. Write a review, post a comment, or share with your friends. And if you or someone you know would be interested in coming onto the podcast, let me know. And until then, I will talk to you guys all next week. Bye, everyone.